Hello and welcome to Immunity, your immunology podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Bianca Redenbaugh. And I'm Lara Dungan. And this is the podcast where we tell you all about the most exciting research going on in the world of immunology. So grab a cup of tea, sit down and relax, and we'll fill you in. We're here to talk about what research is being done, what new treatments we should be watching out for, and what's happening in the immunology labs and clinics all around the world. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can email us at immunoteapodcast at gmail.com. That's immunotea spelled I-M-M-U-N-O-T-E-A podcast at gmail.com. Or you can tweet us at immunotea. Don't forget that's T-E-A. Now, let's get started and move on to our guest for the day, Dr. Joanne Masterson. Joanne obtained her PhD degree from Maynooth University in Ireland. She subsequently moved abroad to complete her postdoc training and fellowships in 2014 and became an assistant professor at the University of Colorado, Denver in the US. Joanne was appointed assistant professor in Maynooth University's Department of Biology in 2018 and is the principal investigator of the Allergy, Inflammation and Remodeling Research Lab and is a member of the Kathleen Lonsdale Institute for Human Health Research. Joanne, you are very welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me, guys. We might just start by saying a lot of your research focuses around eosinophils and the role they play in the gastrointestinal tract. Maybe you could talk to us first about the role they play in a healthy gastrointestinal tract. Sure. So I'd be delighted to. We really know very little about the eosinophil in health. We know so much more about it in disease. Um, And it's only in really in recent years that we've become to appreciate more uh, its role in health. We'd initially recognized eosinophils as anti-helminthic, anti-parasitic cells of the immune system and became to to understand a lot more about them and their roles in uh, allergic diseases such as asthma thereafter. And it was only since then that we've started to look back and say, that the eosinophil is, is present in a lot of tissues in health and, and what are they doing there? Because it's not they're not in every tissue. Um, we understand now that they're important for the development of the immune system, of plasma cell production, of IgA production, uh, the immune surveillance in the GI tract, and that they do actually play an important role in health um, as well as during uh, inflammation. And even our own work has actually recently elucidated to the fact that eosinophils can actually control inflammation and may actually not always be a negative instigator of inflammation in that they're important for the production of anti-inflammatory lipid mediators and can actually quiesce or quell inflammation in certain situations. Can you tell us what eosinophilic esophagitis or EOE as it's often called actually is? Sure. So EOE is a chronic immune-mediated disease. We know that it's initiated by an allergic inflammation, oftentimes foods, and that a characteristic predominance of eosinophils are in the inflammatory infiltrate of the esophagus, where the eosinophil is normally not resident. So it's quite curious to see an increase of them. Uh, We know that it requires a biopsy for diagnosis. So we have to be able to see those eosinophils as well as for disease surveillance. Um, And clinicians would often have uh, had to exclude other esophageal disorders in order to come up with a diagnosis of EOE. So it's a tough disease for patients to live with. It has substantial quality of life issues, a number of symptoms um, that are difficult, difficult, difficulty swallowing, um, food getting stuck in your throat, sometimes having to present at the emergency room to have it removed, vomiting, reflux per appetite. Um, patients sometimes can have a secondary poor nutritional status as a result of the feeding uh, disorder associated with it. You did mention a little bit there about, for instance, food boluses getting stuck. 
Maybe you could talk to us a little bit about how a clinician might expect someone to present with this disease and maybe the tests that are involved in diagnosis. And perhaps you can touch a little bit on the difference between the disease in children and adults. Sure. So it's a disease oftentimes that people live with without knowing they have it. It's it's one of those kind of quiet diseases that you'll often adapt to your behaviors around feeding, around eating change. And oftentimes people will present later in life with it, not, not knowing that they've had it for their entire lives. But it is, it'll present oftentimes in the emergency room. People will have food stuck in the esophagus. It needs to be removed. They might go to their GP where they've had issues with swallowing um, over a period of time extensively. They might have had a choking incident in a public space and, and really just having some issues with this and not really clear what's wrong. Unfortunately, they do need to go in for an endoscopy and have the biopsy taken for that diagnosis to occur. And the expertise and the, the uh, keen eye of the pathologist in identifying the eosinophils in that histology is really key to getting that diagnosis quickly and early. Uh, but once the diagnosis is there, I think there's great hope, there's great opportunities for treatment and for, for changing that quality of life trajectory for patients who have it. I do think it's fascinating, though, the the importance of the knowledge or the experience of the clinicians when they're asking questions. My colleagues in Colorado would often say that it was about how the question was phrased as much as it was about what the question was. So do you take a long time to eat your food? Do you take a lot of sauce with your food? Do you drink a lot? Do you avoid uh, eating in public spaces? So sometimes it's it's the keen listening ear of the clinician as much as it is about the suspicion of the patient that something is wrong um, and eventually getting them to a diagnosis. So in the early days, I think there was a long delay to diagnosis for patients. And I think that's getting much faster, which is great to hear now. I, I think it's also an interesting disease in that it can present quite differently in, pa- in patients uh, who have it during childhood and those who are diagnosed in adulthood. So clinicians might see different symptomology in patients who present during childhood. They might have issues with feeding. They might have behavioral issues around feeding. They might be vomiting. They're, they're very broad, you know, GI symptoms, abdominal pain. So it can be really hard to target or to identify or to suspect in kids. But in adults, it becomes much more obvious or in teenagers as well. You start to see that dysphagic symptoms. You start to see the difficulties with swallowing. And then eventually, unfortunately, because of tissue remodeling, you start to see that food impaction occurring in patients. So the symptoms are different uh, between children and adults. And um, the experience of the disease then is different as well. That's very interesting. Can I ask, why do you think that a condition that wasn't well known even 10 years ago is now so prevalent? It's a really interesting question. And and for me as a scientist, not a, you know, a clinician, but a person who's interested in human health from a science point of view, it's been really, really interesting to watch from the outside looking in and to appreciate the experience of my clinical colleagues in, in sharing their experience with this disease. I, I think it's a multifactorial thing. I don't think it didn't exist 10 years ago. I think we were maybe, as, as we talked about previously, I think the suspicion for it wasn't as high as it is now you know, the knowledge of the symptoms. I joined this field in 2008. And at that stage, we in 2007, the first clinical agreement about diagnostic criteria had just been published. So we were only recording it from such a, you know, a short period of time previously. So even to have an agreement about how to diagnose it, to um, the experience of the clinicians with the questions like, you know, do you lather your food in sauce? You know, that was something that took time and experience. And I, I think that we're learning so much more 
you know, our clinician colleagues are doing a great job at really paying attention to this. And I think then as, as well as scientists, we're putting a lot of effort into trying to understand the disease better. I think the collective of the patients as well who really want to understand this disease, there's a, a perfect storm of people here are really trying to advance this disease. And that includes uh, increasing the awareness and doing things like this podcast to, to increase that, that knowledge and the awareness of the disease. I suppose the the interesting thing is that obviously EOE isn't the only thing that affects our esophagus. Maybe you could comment a bit about the relationship between EOE and and other things like gastroesophageal reflux disease. and, And even could you treat EOE with acid control medications alone? Yeah, you know, it's it's an interesting one. Again, from the clinical point of view, I think it was unclear whether patients just had reflux. And I think there was a suspicion of just difficult to treat reflux. The symptoms are grossly overlapping between the two diseases. So it's very hard to get a diagnosis to start with. And I think patients as well, there'll be a delay to even presentation, I imagine, at the hospital because they'll keep taking their, their over-the-counter antacid medications thinking, I'll get on top of this or I'll change my diet and and that's going to fix it. So there's a real delay to getting there and there's an overlap in the symptoms. And by the time they eventually get to that biopsy, the biopsy can be very similar between patients with eosinophilic esophagitis and reflux disease. And um, it's become difficult to kind of discern the two diseases from each other. But eventually, clinicians have figured out how they've come up with, you know, their consensus agreements for the diagnostic criteria, both for EOE and the exclusion of reflux. Um, And they've come up with a a treatment criteria, I think, as well, that helps to discern eosinophilic esophagitis from reflux. So can we talk a little bit about the cytokines that are involved in the pathophysiology and could we potentially target them therapeutically in the future? Definitely. So, you know, I think the biggest advance and the fastest advance that we had was understanding the immune profile. You know, we, we got a kickstart, I think, with EOE because some people would consider it uh, an atopic dermatitis of the esophagus. Other people consider it asthma of the esophagus. But they're all very interlinked and they actually have very similar pathophysiology. So it made that we could really make quick advances in eosinophilic esophagitis and understanding it. So the typical cytokine mediators associated with other atopic disorders, such as asthma and dermatitis, IL-13, IL-5, IL-4, you know, they're key mediators of TH2 type inflammation, but also other type 2 uh, epithelial derived uh, cytokines such as TSLP. And we know that patients who have uh, chronic untreated or ineffectively treated unbridled inflammation of the esophagus will experience a tissue pathophysiology, a chronicity and a fibrosis similar to what is seen in scarring tissue or in in the asthmatic lung. So we know that mediators such as TGF-beta are key for that fibrostenosis in patients. And then we know the same chemokines are involved, so the cascade of chemokines associated with eosinophilia such as eotaxin. And there's been a lot of preclinical and and clinical studies trying to target each of these molecular mediators with some success and, and recently actually a targeting therapy for IL-4 and 13 was approved by the EMA and the FDA. So we do have Dupixent or Dupilumab, however you describe it, and um, that targets uh, IL-13, IL-4 receptor and that's just uh, received uh, clinical accreditation. Are there different endotypes of EOE? Maybe you could talk to us a little bit about these. Yes, sure. When EOE came to my life, you know, we 
as I said, we just the, the, the field had agreed a consensus diagnostic criteria. And it's been fascinating, again, as a scientist to see how science and clinicians together have worked to, to better understand the disease. And much like other atopic disorders, there are very much endotypes with EOE. So recent studies by the Seeger Consortia in, uh, based in the US have uh, come up with, for now, three different molecular uh, endotypes that can describe patients with EOE, so inflammatory EOE, early EOE, and then fibrostenotic EOE. So it's it's suspected that that's a continuum of disease, but we yet, we don't know this disease for long enough and we don't have enough longitudinal studies to be able to understand that. But yes, there, there are different endotypes of EOE. In one of your papers, you described the barrier dysfunction involved in EOE as a chicken or egg type scenario. So the question is, what comes first? Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure, I can. We don't know the answer and, and that's why I'm here. That's why I'm, I'm doing the research I'm doing. We have lots of suspicion and we have a lot of data to support either the chicken or the egg. We know that in patients with allergic diseases, the barrier is broken and it tends to be broken at multiple mucosal surfaces. So I'd be lying if I didn't say I, I'm very much uh, of the idea that the barrier is broken to start with, but we don't have strong enough evidence to prove that because unfortunately we don't have pre-disease in patients with any of these allergic disorders. But what we do know is that when that inflammation does occur, when that allergic response has happened, the barrier is broken at that point. And that in my opinion, it's as important to target that epithelial barrier dysfunction as it is to target the inflammation that's going on within that epithelium. So chicken or egg, it still is part of the inflammation. It still is part of the disease. And I definitely think it still is part of the therapeutic armamentarium that we need to develop for this disorder. You touched uh, very briefly earlier on the role of food in this disease. I suppose we know that the best treatment for celiac disease is to avoid gluten. Can you talk to us a bit about the role food has in EOE and food avoidances might have in the treatment of it? Mm -hmm. So it is known that it is a food allergic disease. Uh, There are other allergens involved, but food is primarily the antigen that's involved in most patients with EOE. But it's been tricky. It's not as clean as celiac disease. It isn't just gluten. So oftentimes uh, dietary approaches, dietary elimination may occur either empirically, so unique to a particular individual, or um, as a field, I think clinically they move towards the six most typical food antigens, so a six food elimination diet, where the topmost common food antigens are removed. We can imagine something like that. It's quite extensive. It's broad. It's really tricky to, to uh, integrate into one's lifestyle, uh, particularly for children, parents, you know, people who are out living in the workspace. But it is something that some patients do desire and can effectively um, see remission of disease as a result of the food elimination uh, diets. Um, And we're quite excited, actually, this week, there was a publication in the Lancet Gastroenterology showing that a one food elimination diet, so a single food elimination diet of milk was just as effective as the six food elimination diet. It still only carries about a 40% efficacy. So not all patients will be responsive to either one or six foods. But it is definitely something that can be attractive to some patients and to some clinicians in treating the disease. But food is, is definitely a big part of it. 
So we've covered food avoidance. You mentioned that dupilumab has recently been approved. What are some other recommended treatments for EOE and how might we measure disease activity? Yeah, so in the first uh, instance, uh, it used to be that PPIs, the proton pump inhibitors, which are the treatment for reflux, and we touched earlier on the overlap between reflux and EOE. So PPIs were actually part of the diagnostic criteria. You had to have failed a trial of PPIs in order to get a diagnosis of EOE. But we became to know more about the disease, and we realized that PPIs actually are a treatment for EOE. So people who respond to PPIs actually have eosinophilic esophagitis. So there's a small portion of patients, about 50% of patients with EOE will go on to just respond to very simply to proton pump inhibitors. Um, and that's a, been a great tool and a great movement um, for the field. Otherwise, steroids, typical of most allergic diseases, are a big part of the armamentarium of treatment. So topical uh, treatment of steroids. So generally, the treatment will avoid systemic uh, steroid use, but use a topical budesonide or a topical fluticasone to coat the esophagus. And yeah, more recently now, biologics have started to come into the fold as well. So we've mentioned dupilumab. I imagine there's a lot more to come from that direction as well as small molecule uh, based medicines uh, that are probably on their way to trials. Joanne, you've already mentioned that this is quite a new disease. So, so I'm just wondering what the outlook is like for patients, for adults and for children, maybe 10, 20 years after diagnosis. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting question for sure. I think it really will depend on the individual. We've already learned that there are endotypes within EOE. I think for the majority of patients, there's going to be a good outlook. As long as you get the diagnosis in a timely manner, I think that there are lots of treatment options that are already quite successful here. And I think with uh, good attention to your own treatment decision making, to be fully informed, to, to go into the conversation with your clinician in, a, in an open and full manner, Um, I think there's a great outlook for patients uh, with this and with their families as well. I don't think it is the same. And I've seen massive changes in the outlook for patients over the short period of time that I've been in this field. I imagine that over the next 10, 20 years, it's going to be fantastic. There's such a focus on this field. There's such an interest in it. Patients are so actively involved in designing the research and making decisions about the research's progress and in supporting the research being done. Um, So I think the outlook is good. I, I, you know, with regards to kind of clinical outcomes, there's been no evidence of anything untoward out of the chronicity of this disease. We don't see clinical evidence of cancer pursuing in patients with eosinophilic esophagitis, where you can see that in patients maybe with GERD going on to uh, Barrett's esophagus. So I I think the future is, is definitely hopeful and bright. Speaking of the future, what are you excited about and what should we be looking out for in the coming months and years? And in particular, what do you have coming down the line in your lab? So I'm, I'm really excited about the um, opportunity to really highlight this disease to Irish patients and to, to the Irish population. Uh, there's been huge interest in the research that's going on in our group, as well as the research that's going on with our clinical partners in various different hospitals around the country, both in, in Dublin and in uh, rural areas. And so I'm excited to see a group of patients come together and inform my research from an Irish perspective, an Irish experience point of view. Um, From the lab's point of view, it's been really exciting to see so many trainees come through uh, with an interest.
interest in this field and, and to learn so much and contribute already so much to our understanding of the disease. Um, from my own point of view, um, it's been wonderful to develop model systems that don't always rely on patients, um, patient biopsies. So being able to have ex vivo model systems and animal model systems when necessary. Um, and we've spent a lot of time developing model systems within the, the lab. I'm obviously very biased in that I'm interested in the epithelium. I do apologize to our immunology leaders, our, uh, listenership. Um, but he is, a, you know, you can think of the epithelium as, as a, a, a non-professional immune mediator, uh, if you forgive. So I'm very interested in seeing the role of the epithelium and potentially the important role I think the epithelium is going to play in mucosal healing. So we can target the immune system, as I mentioned earlier, but I think it's going to be really important to knit back together that epithelium after the damage has been done. And there's already evidence, there's good evidence in other allergic disorders, and we have some in our own group, that there's a memory in the epithelium of the tissue of this inflammation and so to understand that better and to try and resolve that repair that restore the epithelial architecture to its full normal health so that then you can have an effective boundary between what we eat eat it healthily and what the immune system sees below. Dr Joanne Masterson from the Maynooth University in Ireland thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, wow. That was amazing. Joanne is absolutely amazing. That is all so exciting. I think one of the things I found the most exciting is what she mentioned about the recent paper in Lancet showing how just removing dairy from the diet is as good as a six food exclusion. I kind of can't fathom the difference that would make for patients removing solely dairy compared to removing all of those food groups. That's really exciting. I'd say that makes a massive difference to the lives of patients going forward. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what happens with that. I also think what she said about asking the right questions and really listening is so important for EOE and lots of other conditions we see as immunologists that are rare. And also EOE obviously is not just a disease for immunologists, but for our gastroenterology colleagues too. And a multidisciplinary approach is required for optimal management. No, that, that's absolutely 100% true. It really is a multidisciplinary disease. I suppose that brings the episode to an end. And I think it means I have to ask you, what have you got <laughs> up your sleeve today, Bianca? I have an anecdote from my life. Oh, okay. Great stuff. Fire away. Okay. So this morning, my boss said, I find it highly suspicious that you're only sick on weekdays. And I said, it must be my weekend immune system. Oh my goodness. Okay. I actually really like that one. That's very good. I, I find that joke maybe a little hard to swallow though. Oh, oh. <laughs> okay. okay. We've destroyed these jokes enough. So maybe we'll leave it at that. If you want to get in touch with us with comments or questions as people have been doing, and thank you so much for the emails and tweets. We're really, really enjoying reading them and we'll read some of them out on the podcast in the future. Please email us at immunoteapodcast at gmail.com. So immunotea spelled I-M-M-U-N-O-T-E-A podcast at gmail.com. Or don't forget you can tweet us at ImmunoT. That's T-E-A. We'd like to thank our guest today, Dr. Joanne Masterson, our executive producer, Professor Niall Conlon, and our editor, Aidan McKelvey. And thanks so much to you, the listener. We'll chat to you again next month. Goodbye for now.